is going to create more turbulence. The economic statistics. The triple dip recession. Collapsing commodities. Monetary policy has to do the heavy lifting work. Money for nothing. Good morning and welcome to Money for Nothing with me, Rinita Malhotrahora. Greece talks go nowhere once again as the deadline looms. U.S. stocks decline and Shanghai's volatility spreads to the U.S. as the largest ETF tracking mainland Chinese stocks erased its gain for June. Asian futures are mixed amid the Greek stalemate. So I think that uh, European history is full of uh Disagreements, negotiations, and then compromises. So after the comprehensive Greek proposals, I'm confident that uh, we will reach a compromise that will help Eurozone and Greece. That's Greek Prime Minister Alexis Tsipras, who still appears to be optimistic about some kind of re- resolution, even though the talks on his country's aid package have now been pushed into the weekend. Well, more on Greece uh, later in the show with former investment banker Satyajit Das. And after that, Bernard Ng of the Asian Development Bank will tell us about green bonds. And finally, IHS Global's Sarah Johnson talks to us about green shoots in the developed economies. Tobias Hexter of Chinese University of Hong Kong is our guest host this morning. Good morning, Tobias. Good morning, Renita. Tobias, another 3.5% drop on the Shanghai Composite. What is happening? Yeah, it's uh, interesting to say the least. Um, the one thing that you see is that even for the month of June, the market is not even down that much if it's down to begin with because we also had these massive rips up. The interesting number to tell, of course, what everybody talks about, margin financing. A lot of this boom is also done on speculative margin mostly by relatively smaller investors that newly entered the market. And when we have a stampede going up, you might as well get a stampede going down as soon as this margin thing gets tighter. I think today will be an interesting one. If we hit another low today, that could cause another set of more margin calls and the thing reinforces itself. That's also the reason indeed that we had this decrease of the loan deposit ratio and some other measures that the government and the authorities will take to cushion this fall. In the end, no sorry, no mistake about it, um, if it's a greater fool theory, for the sake of the country and their plan, the biggest fool of all will remain the Chinese government who is going to backstop this one way or another. Well, this is it. I mean, does this mean that, uh, you know, the bank scrapping the 75% loan to deposit ratio, uh, does it mean that this move will not spur a surge in lending business for Chinese commercial banks? Yeah, it's, it's a bit like what the discussion has been in Europe and the US as well. You can throw a lot of people at the economy, but if the economy itself is not performing that massively well, will that money be taken up for lending? And we see an increase of liquidity. It is not a certainty that will also be picked up for actual investments into the economy. So essentially what you're saying is the economy, the, the state of the Chinese economy is now catching up with the stock markets, Yes. Yeah, I don't know, actually. I think in the end, stock markets are right, given that that's the fallacy of people put their money where their mouth is. I think the markets have run ahead of the rest of the 
real economy or real numbers quite aggressively. I'm not certain whether the economy is actually going to pick up or whether we've seen a difference in valuation of Chinese companies, which would be a positive explanation, or whether we see some significant downside. Well, here in Hong Kong, the uh, Securities and Futures Commission says that it's against the idea of letting companies use weighted voting rights if they want to list. The commission says that its board unanimously opposes the idea of some shareholders having more voting rights than others. Tobias, this uh, whole issue came up following Alibaba's decision to jilt Hong Kong Exchange and list in the U.S., which instead offers these dual listing structures. Now, can you explain the idea of weighted voting rights for our audiences? I'm not a full specialist on how it works in Hong Kong, but what I know in the US, and that surprises me as it is actually the land of the free, is that you get to see different shareholders, actually different share classes. Uh, One of the share classes, of course, offers a lot of voting rights, usually kept by uh, the founders of the company. And the other classes that have less voting rights to say, which are for the general public. Uh, I have to say from that perspective, it is publicized. People know that they have inferior rights to the the owners of the company. But in the end, um, it has a bit of all animals are equal, but some animals are more equal than others. Now, why does the SFC think that Hong Kong's securities markets and reputation would be harmed by these structures? Yeah, in, the, in the end, I think corporate government is very important. And I dare say, it's not a popular statement, that corporate government over here in Asia has more challenges than it has in, say, the US or Europe. Uh, So I would agree with the tough stance on the SFC Mm. um, that at least try to set the guidelines for some equality in shareholders. We have seen uh, significant... I would say, uh, abuses of minority shareholders in this neck of the world. Okay, I have a a list of saying, does it matter what share class you invest in? If you look in the US perspective? Yes. um, Yeah, mostly the only share class that's available for investing are the ones that are offered to the general public. Um, There were some cases, I remember uh, when Chipotle, the very tasty uh, burrito restaurant went public. Mm. They had both the A and the B classes listed, which had differences in voting rights. And there, indeed, even though liquidity was less of the more voting, more vote-holding shares, it actually turned out to be the better investment because they started flipping one into the other at a premium. Mm. Now, uh, Tobias, does this decision put the SFC at loggerheads with Hong Kong Exchange? I think that's a natural, uh, not even conflict of interest, but... A discussion to be had. Hong Kong Exchange is a commercial entity. They want to list everything, including my mother. Um, <laughs> on the other hand, the SFC needs to make certain that these listings and everything takes place within a regulatory framework. I think I, I would side, so I'm a bit biased. I would side with the SFC on this side. Mm. Um, of course, you shouldn't make it overly uh, regulated that, let's say, Singapore goes away with it because anything goes. But try to set the bar is something that works from this perspective. We've seen a lot of instances also recently in Hong Kong, again, in, uh, involving big minority and majority shareholders. Let's not make the level playing field even less level. Mm, I, Tobias, I think you're just saying that your mother wouldn't make a good listing. I'm very sorry for that uh, to apologize. I should have said something else. All right. Well, in other local news, a budget airline Jetstar has been told that it can't have a license to operate out of Hong Kong. The Air Transport Licensing Authority says that a license wouldn't comply with the basic law because the SAR isn't the airline's principal place of business. Cathay Pacific, Hong Kong 
Airlines and Hong Kong Express had all opposed the application. The carrier is a three-way joint venture between Australia's Qantas, China Eastern Airlines and Macau casino tycoon Stanley Ho's Hong Kong-based conglomerate Shuntuk Holdings. And under Hong Kong law, an airline will only be given an operating license if its principal place of business and center of its decision-making is in Hong Kong. But in a statement, the Air Transport Licensing Authority said that Jetstar Hong Kong could not make its decisions independently of its two non-Hong Kong shareholders. Well, conversations in Greece, uh, I should say, about Greece with its creditors don't seem to be going anywhere. The Greek people are now understanding that if a deal is brokered, it's not going to be the one that they wanted. Here's Bloomberg's Dimitra Kassanidis. People, and um, I think justifiably so, the ones who've suffered a great deal really feel as though the lenders are not understanding just how difficult it's been and that there's been no framework beyond loaning the money to really help Greece get back to where it needs to be. And, and there are those, of course, who have accepted all along that a deal is necessary. But I think everybody's moving to a place where they're very tired with what's going on. And whatever the outcome is, they're ready to have that outcome happen and then move forward. U.S. stocks declined on the lack of uh, progress in talks on Greece. The Dow Jones lost 0.42 percent to close at 17,890. The S&P 500 fell 0.3 percent to close at 2,102. And the Nasdaq fell 0.2 percent to end the day at 5,112. Let's bring in our first phone guest this morning, Satyajit Das, ex-investment banker, uh, who also writes a column for The Independent. Good Good morning, Das. Good morning. So, Das, there's nothing new on the table in Thursday's round of talks. What would you say are the biggest sticking points? Well, I think before we say that, the first thing to actually look at is I've always said that when you're looking at the Greek crisis, there's no point buying a ticket to a single performance. You have to buy a lifetime ticket because whatever is agreed, and the parties are actually remarkably close. And there's just basically one debate, and the debate is whether the primary surplus is going to be met by tax increases or more spending cuts. And the reality is, whatever agreement is done, it's it's actually kind of silly because everybody's going to have to come back to the table within a few months. Because don't forget, this agreement is an extension which will cover six to nine months. All the focus is on $7.2 billion, which actually, if you calculate where the Greeks got the money to make some payments over the last few months, including drawing down their IMF accounts, if they have to replace that, there's no new money. The debt issue, they have between now and 2053, somewhere between 5 and $10 billion due each year, mm. plus they're rolling $15 billion of short-term treasury bills. So basically, nothing has actually been fixed. It's the classic European sort of mocktail. They never have a cocktail. They just have a mocktail. There's no substance to it. Well, this is it. I mean, we use the term default so loosely, yet, you know, the truth is that if Greece doesn't end up paying the IMF back, um, you know, this month, then it doesn't technically qualify as a default, does it? Because there's a difference between missing a payment to bond investors and one to an institution, right? They'd just be in arrears. Look, what you're talking about is economics. You're talking about financial legal rules. That's actually kind of irrelevant because this is all political. And at the end of the day, 
all of the IMF, everything else is not the issue. This whole process is being run by a single institution, which is the European Central Bank. Mm. Because everybody knows if the ECB cut off emergency liquidity assistance to the Greek banks, the entire Greek financial system would collapse. Well, and there are some suggestions already that the Greek banks are running out of the kind of collateral that's needed by the ECB to keep lending them money. And as you know, the ECB's only been uh, putting Greece on a drip feed, you know, extending it by small amounts. So what you're saying is the payment to the IMF is irrelevant, but the pay- payment back to, you know, if the ECB actually turns off the taps, that's what's really going to cause the problem. I think that's right. And I think the the current draft, as you know, this has been a battle of the drafts, <laughs> which have been going on for a long time. The current draft, which is really from Syriza's point of view, a massive backdown, which, as the Bloomberg correspondent in Athens was saying, is going to cause him political problems untold. But the real issue that actually forced Cyprus, I think, to move forward with it, despite the fact that it's still disagreements, is the fact that he actually was forced to sit down with Mario Draghi. And the ECB president, I think, made it very clear that Mr. Cyprus understood the gravity of the position that he was facing, which is literally Greeks would go to their ATMs and put their cards in and nothing would come out. Tobias? Yeah, I found it interesting. I fully agree with this point. And I find it very interesting, and the markets didn't really pick it up, that actually yesterday Draghi announced that they keep the ELA uh, ceiling unchanged. Mm. And at the current pace, that could be uh, ATMs emptying out somewhere in the weekend. Thus? I think I think you're absolutely correct. But the other thing which is really quite interesting, which nobody seems to be talking about, because the markets are obsessed by the fact that they whether it's deal or no deal, but even if they agree to this 1% primary surplus, which is the budget before interest payments. In my view, the economy has deteriorated so dramatically since January. I think they have no hope of meeting that. And this fixation on the surplus ignores major issues like the huge structural changes that Greece has to make to, to regain competitiveness if it's to stay within the euro and not use devaluation. But also the banking system is basically on the edge of a precipice. And the other issue which people forget is at the end of the day, the successive Greek governments of different political persuasion have promised repeatedly to do the reforms, but failed for whatever reason. Mm. I just don't see why anybody would feel confident that whatever deal is done is going to actually be... Thus, why does the ECB continue to extend emergency funding when the position is so precarious? I think that's a question you should ask Mr. Draghi, (laughs) not me. Because simply put, the ECB has certain obligations, but also the obligations are to actually only lend to solvent banks. Now, given that the Greek bank solvency is deeply in question for a couple of reasons, One is their bad debts are rising very rapidly because of the weakness of the economy. And the second thing is most of their capital is in the form of deferred tax assets or tax credits, not in the form of equity. And the fact that they're only alive as long as the ECB keep funding them, I find the determination that the Greek banks are solvent to be quite interesting. 
All right, Das, thank you so much for joining us this morning. That is Satyajit Das. He is a former investment banker and author of Extreme Money. The Transport Department has received notification from the MTR Corporation that due to a signaling fault near Kowloon Tong Station, East Rail Lines will operate at a slower speed from Kowloon Tong to Taiwai Stations. This could extend the total journey time on the East Rail Line between Hong Hom and Lo Wu or Lok Ma Chow Stations by 5 to 10 minutes. So please allow more time for travel. Let's take a quick look at the numbers this morning. The Nikkei is down 0.16% to 20,737. Australia's ASX 200 index is down a quarter of a percent to 5,606. And Seoul's Kospi down 0.08% to 2,083. In currency, the euro is currently valued at 1.12 US dollars. The US dollar is trading at 123.6 yen and one pound sterling buys you 12 Hong Kong dollars and 20 cents. Well, in June, Asia Bond Monitor estimated that total bonds issued by renewable energy corporations globally have increased from $5.2 billion in 2010 to $18.3 billion. Asia has been leading the way in uh, issuing bonds with the bulk of it coming from the People's Republic of China. So let's bring in Asian Development Bank's senior economist Bernard Ng, who manages the report. Good morning, Bernard. Good morning. Bernard, why are green bonds doing so well? Well, I think it's definitely uh, you know, a confluence of several factors. One, there's a growing uh, realization among governments and also the private sector of you know the importance of, I mean, how should you say, the, the threat of climate change on our you know, planet. So that's definitely uh, put a lot of interest in you know, investing in more environmentally friendly form of uh, energy generation. At the same time, we saw over the past few years or so, there's been a big drop in the price or the cost of renewable energy. So uh, while they are still probably more expensive than conventional sources, the differential is, has narrowed uh, greatly. Tobias? Did you note uh, that uh, most of these were coming from f- solar bonds? Yeah, one thing I noticed from this perspective, because I remember on hindsight what was Kaori, the first Chinese default on a bond ever. When I googled the name, I got a lot of other defaults and bankruptcies on solar. Um, is the upfront cost, as you mentioned, in combination with the fact that there's at least some debatable credit quality, a deterrent for these investments? Well, I think uh, for sure there's, uh, you know, there's been uh, some default, and I think what happened was uh, generally there uh, was a, how we say, a big rush towards the solar, and a lot of, uh, how should we say, company jumping in, and there was probably a, a bit of overcapacity, which probably helped uh, drive the, uh, the drop in this. Uh, but of course, overall, I think the market is still very healthy. I mean, it's not just about solar; there's still, um, you know, wind and other forms. Um, Bernard, you know, developing the bond market, putting in place uh, a stable long-term regulatory framework, um, how soon or how long-term do you think this uh, plan is or, you know, how long will it take to actually get there? Yeah, I think if the governments are committed to, you know, uh, shifting the energy sort of portfolio towards more towards green sources, environmentally friendly sources, it can be done quite quickly. Um, you know, as we know, even conventional power projects do have quite long-term payback period. So the framework has already been there to help uh, them uh, invest in this. Of course, for renewable energy sources, you know, 
almost all the costs are upfront because operating costs are close to zero minimum. So the stable long-term regulatory framework to uh, give, how should we say, comfort to investors that you know the price they are getting, the conditions they are getting for the investment will not change over the period, let's say, 10, 20 years that they uh, expect to make their money back. Bernard, you know, the two countries that really seem to be focusing on issuing green bonds are China and India. Can you explain to us the difference uh, in the structures between the two scenarios, if any? Yes, I mean, uh, China, of course, has been, you know, uh, you know done very well in uh, how it's investing uh, for, you know, uh, investing in the power generation, creating the capacity to generate electricity to supply for its uh, energy needs. Uh, now it's more issue, I mean in China the framework for investing is all there. That's why you can ramp up the renewable energy investment. So there is just a more of a shift to, from you know, coal or oil towards uh, uh, renewable sources like um, uh, solar or wind, right? Um, the money is there. Uh, the regulatory frameworks are mostly there, and the government seems to be pushing really hard for it. So that uh, probably explains why there's been this rapid rise in uh, renewable energy investment, and this all tie in very much with uh, China, you know, uh, concern about energy security and you know, uh, maintaining a uh, how should we say stable energy supply for the country. India, of course, is a uh, kind of different story. I mean, uh, India does not have uh, sufficient. Uh, energy supply at the moment. Uh, it's not uncommon to have blackouts and so on there. So in India, I think the focus more is about uh, energy assess. Uh, the, they try to see, see this green energy as a way to uh, bring energy to the rural area of grid solutions. Not to say that in China that's not happening, but in India, I think it's more uh, smaller scale uh, rural energy generation. All right, Bernard, thank you so much for joining us this morning. That is Bernard Ng, and he is a senior economist at the Asian Development Bank. Well, after that conversation on green energy, we'll be back to talk more about green shoots in developed economies. That's just in a moment. The time is now 8.25 a.m. and you're listening to Money for Nothing on RTHK Radio 3. Well, uh, IHS Global's June report shows a world real GDP growth should slow from 2.7% in 2014 to 2.6% in 2015 before picking up to 3.3% in 2016. And many of the world's developed economies, uh, their recovery remains in place. Let's talk to IHS Global's uh, Economics Senior Research Director, Sarah Johnson, who joins us now from Boston. Good morning, Sarah, or I should say good evening to you. Thanks, Sarah. So, uh, you know, in the U.S., uh, we saw another bad first quarter uh, attributed largely to the weather, but um, (laughs) hoping for a rebound. Can you give us an update, uh, not just as to the U.S., but uh, as to what you're seeing about the GDP growth for developed economies in general? Well, generally, we expect to see some improvement in the year ahead in the U.S., uh, the 
uh, economy is likely to grow at about a 2.5% pace in the second quarter, which is a noticeable improvement from a slight contraction in the first quarter. Consumers are driving uh, the better performance of the U.S. economy. Uh, employment gains have been strong. Household net worth is rising. In fact, it's 30% above the peak reached in 2007 in the last cycle. So the signs are looking very positive for the United States. Uh, we're also seeing some gradual pickup in the European economies, and hopefully the events in Greece will not disrupt that too much. Sarah, what about Japan? Japan had a very strong first quarter, although some of that was uh, the result of inventory accumulation. Generally, we're expecting the Japanese economy to uh, grow about uh, 1% this year and 1.5% next year. So modest growth, uh, some, uh, you know, driven in part by exports reflecting uh, the weekend exchange rate and that, in turn, will help to boost capital spending in Japan. Now, Sarah, you know, China is always uh, under the spotlight, and though it receives much criticism for its economy slowing down, um, the truth is that its GDP growth rate is still much higher than that of many countries in the world. So what's your take on this? Yes, certainly China's growth would be the envy of almost any other economy, but it is slowing down. There's some imbalances in credit markets, in housing markets, and industrial capacity that need to be addressed. And so this is we're seeing a pronounced deceleration in fixed investment in China. Uh, that's not a bad thing, uh, but uh, hopefully we'll you know we continue to see fairly solid growth in consumer markets. And um, that will result in 6.5% growth this year for the economy as a whole. We expect something close to that rate, 6.3% next year. So it's, it's a period of maybe subpar growth for China, but still solid growth. And real quick, uh, you know, before we wrap up, does India hold uh, the promise of growth that everybody is expecting? That remains to be seen. Our outlook for India is fairly optimistic. Uh, we're projecting growth rates in the 7 to 8% range over the next few years. That's you know, predicated on con- continuation of economic reforms that will attract more foreign investment. We'll see what happens. All right, Sarah, thank you so much for joining us this morning. That is Sarah Johnson, and she's a Senior Research Director of Global Economics at IHS Global. A quick look uh, now at the numbers before we wrap up the show. The Nikkei is down a quarter of a percent this morning to 20,719. Australia's ASX 200 index down 1.6% to 5,527. And Seoul's Kospi up just slightly 0.18 percent to 2,088. Gold is currently valued at $1,171.50 per ounce and Brent crude oil at $63.36. Well, Tobias, here we are taking the Greece situation now into the weekend, although we had hoped for a resolution this week. Uh, We'll have our eyes on that, but uh, what else should we be looking out for before we start the new Financial Week Monday? Um, I would look at what happens in China. If we're going to get another low, another set of rumors about margin, we might get another measure of stimulus over the weekend. Uh, Interesting.
All right, Tobias. Thanks so much uh, for joining us today. Tobias Hexter, our co-host this morning, is the adjunct associate professor of finance at the Chinese University of Hong Kong. And I'm Renita Malhotrahora, wrapping up for this week's edition of Money for Nothing. And a big thank you, of course, to our producer, Sandra Lam. Let's take a quick look at the weather forecast before we depart. Today will be mainly cloudy with a few showers and thunderstorms in the morning. The temperature right now is 28 degrees Celsius and the relative humidity is 86%. Time for the half hour news summary with Samantha Butler. The first funerals of the nine African-Americans shot dead at a Bible class last week have taken place in Charleston, South Carolina. Police officers stood guard as thousands of mourners celebrated the lives of Sharonda Singleton, a 45-year-old mother of three, and Ethel Lance, who was 70. They were both victims of a white gunman at the Emmanuel African Methodist Episcopal Church. Addressing the congregation, one of the grandsons of Mrs. Lance, Brendan Risher, said she was a symbol of love. Most people in death don't get to represent symbol. She knows none of the victims get to. She gets to represent.